Welcome to This Much I Learn, Marketing Week's monthly podcast in which we invite the great and good in marketing and beyond to impart their wisdom and perspective on marketing matters. My name is Russell Parsons, Editor-in-Chief of Marketing Week, and I am your host for this episode. Our guests today are Les Binet and Peter Field, who have been described by our very own Mark Ritson as the godfathers of effectiveness, a moniker earned by decades on the front line in marketing services, flying the flag for better marketing with more meaningful outcomes. One of the prime reasons for such respect is the book, The Long and Short of It, which this year celebrates its 10th anniversary. For those unfamiliar, the 2013 book interrogated the secrets behind the success of award-winning campaigns and in doing so delivered a template for campaign effectiveness as well as a cautionary tale. Focusing only on Marcon's activity designed to deliver instant wins is of considerable consequence, they argued. You need long and short. It's with this milestone in mind that we welcome them to the podcast to discuss the impact of their work, its legacy, and what next for an industry still short of influence and often lacking in impact. Les, Peter, welcome to This Much I Learned. Nice to be here. Nice to see you, Russell. Peter, let me begin with you. Let me take you back to, uh, well, 2013 or perhaps just before. Uh, what, what, what was behind the book? Why did you decide to write it at that time? Well, Les and I had written a book some years earlier called Marketing in the Era of Accountability. And in that book, we had noted that long and short term effects appeared to be different, that um, campaigns uh, targeting one kind of timescale appeared to be uh, writing different rules to those who were working in the longer term. But we really didn't have enough data at that time, uh, which was 2008-ish from memory. We didn't have enough data in the IPA database to really explore that issue. And of course, it was the very, very early days of the performance marketing revolution. The whole short-term explosion had really yet to get fully going. So there just wasn't a huge experience of that. But if you then fast forward to 2012-13, when we were writing the book, Things had really got motoring by then. We could see the impact of short-termism in the data and, and on effectiveness. We were both very worried about it. The market hadn't really woken up to this yet, and we felt there was a need to capture that. Uh, we now had the data at that point where we could begin to explore the different uh, kinds of effects you get when you target short-term versus long-term. And we could see that they pulled campaigns in different directions and that actually the way to drive long-term effects was not simply to stack short-term effects on short-term effects. So, you know, it was it was in many ways the culmination of a an, an unfulfilled desire when we wrote a Marketing Year of Accountability to really explore that in more depth. So it was a no-brainer for us um, when the time came to write it. And Les, your take on that, I mean, was it a, a do you want to, did you want to deliver a rallying call uh, to, uh, to be better? I'm not sure that's, I don't know about Peter, but I'm not sure that's exactly the way I would have thought about it. I, I'm, I kind of, with all this stuff, I just wanted to know what the truth was. You know, what? how does this stuff really work? Um, and yes, you, you know, when you, when you look at this stuff, then there are, there, there, there is a rallying cry that comes out of it. But the primary motivation for me anyway is just to actually genuinely understand how advertising works. And as Peter says, there was a kind of revelation at the middle of our first book, the forgotten first album. 
Marketing in the Era of Accountability that we published in 2007. So in that book, Peter and I, I think it's fair to say that we, we kind of had this epiphany about um, sort of emotional versus rational, broadly speaking. So, you know, Peter and I were both at BNP, Bozeman Singley Pollock, you know, the great planning agency, the, the, the agency that had produced, you know, the great populist advertising of John Webster. And we'd both been trained to believe that great advertising uh, took, if you like, a rational proposition, uh, a rational message, and put it in an emotional envelope. So the key to powerful advertising was to find a motivating message and then tell that story in a in an engaging, emotive way. So when we examined the data, what we expected to find was that the killer combination was emotional and rational together. Um, and when we looked at the data, that is not what we found. Uh, what we found was actually quite different. We found that the, the more you moved away from rational messages to pure emotion, the more effective advertising was. Um, and this was, you know, this was not for us a comfortable finding. It was not what we wanted or expected to see in the data. To the extent that we cut it, cut, we kept cutting the data in different ways to see whether that was true for all advertising campaigns. Um, and we found that it was true for, you know, um, services and durables and, you know, cheap brands and expensive brands. And we, we, we looked at it in quite a few different ways. And we found that the only area where rational communication worked best was short-term, direct response, performance marketing type stuff. Everything else, it was primarily emotional. And I think it's probably fair to say, Peter, isn't it, that that was a shock to us, wasn't it? I wouldn't say it was a total shock. The extent to which it was true, um, I think, you know, we, we kind of felt that maybe there would be brands or situations or scenarios where actually it wasn't true. But in, but in fact, it, it proved true throughout. Why this is, is sort of so shocking is it undermined the very belief in how advertising worked. We'd always assumed that the role of emotion was to get people to pay attention to messages um, and help people, you know, remember them. And that, you know, our data just wasn't suggesting that. What it was suggesting was that it was the pure emotion itself that was the driver. But we could see that there was this one area where that wasn't true. So when you get, when you look at, you know, performance marketing, what we eventually came to call sales activation, it was the other way around. The more that you, you, you move towards emotion, uh, towards rational messages and leave the emotion out, the better. So we had this beginnings of a model where there were two quite different ways to communicate with people. And we had a hunch that it was also related to short and long term. And, and we then kind of interrogated that in greater depth in the long and the short of it. But for me personally, it began a whole sort of journey about um, well, what is going on psychologically? What is going on in people's minds when they, they process advertising? And it takes you to a place where you begin to understand that brand advertising, at least, is not a communications medium. It is not a way of transmitting messages. It's a way of conditioning people's responses to brands. 
It's more like Pavlovian conditioning, training. It works at a different level psychologically. It works at the system one level, as Daniel Kahneman um, put it. Um, and that was the journey we started on then. And, and really, the long and the short of it was our attempt to, um, you know, interrogate that further. I mean, there is a kind of rally cry in a sense, though not one that we intentionally set out, but it has been pulled out and developed since, which was that, you know, I've already mentioned it briefly, which was the performance marketing revolution, which absolutely shaped uh, a decade of marketing where everyone was told that actually brand building was a kind of old fashioned and inefficient way of thinking and that actually the smart way to go was to use big data to serve these activation messages at the last moment. Um, and there was a huge and very heavy sell going in at the C-suite of major corporations. Loads of marketers I've spoken to told me about it at the time. Uh, and we, you know, I think a lot of people in marketing weren't even aware of what was going on. So behind their their marketing worlds, this heavy sell was going in at the C-suite and companies were just pulling money out of brand building, developing their own performance marketing operations. Um, and marketing was was kind of missing out on, on that budget. Um, so that became the rally cry because it was going on in a sense in a rather uh, clandestine manner. It wasn't, it wasn't being exposed to the light of day in terms of whether this really was going to deliver long term for brands. And so that has become, I think, why the long and the short of it, 10 short years after it was written, uh, finally has kind of found its real voice out there. And it's, it seems better known now than it ever has been over the last 10 years. Personally, I feel that I, I, I've been fighting against just performance marketing. Performance marketing has a really important role to play in, in marketing. It's not because, as Ritson said, the most important word in the title, the long and the short of it, is brand. Um, we, you know, we strongly argued you need both. But the, 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 the kind of trend and fight for just performance marketing, I would argue, goes back right the way to the late 80s with the rise of EPOS um, in uh, retailing and the rise of price promotions um, in, based on the data that they were getting from that. Uh, it goes right the way through the 80s and 90s with the rise of direct marketing. Um, and But what happened really from 2000 onwards, um, it entered a new virulent form with, um, with online advertising and marketing, the, the, the arrival of Google in 2000, the arrival, arrival of social media and YouTube in 2005 to seven. I was going to say, and Peter, you just, uh, you just alluded to this. I think this is what you meant anyway. I've been at Marketing Week since, a, well, for about 10 years. Um, and maybe this is, says more about me than it does in, anything else, in particular the, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the book itself. But... I've heard about it more, say, in the last five years uh, than I did uh, in its first five years. And a lot of what you've just described, uh, Peter, in particular, in terms of um, the conversations that you've had with marketers, are still required today. There is still a lot of um, a lack of appreciation, um, a lack of appetite. Uh, for brand building, particularly when you can demonstrate the efficiency of something and 
online metrics do perhaps more easily allow you to do that, uh, if not demonstrate effectiveness and, as I say, efficiency. So, I mean, how have you seen the the you know what was the reaction to the book initially, and how have you seen that change over the years? Yeah, no, a really interesting question, Ross, and it has changed radically. I mean, the early days, I think those that didn't like the message, who were very particularly from digital marketing side of the divide, whether as marketers or as agency, they kind of um, criticised it as being old world thinking. All the usual criticisms came out. This is, you know, this is effectiveness competition data. It's not typical. You can't generalise the findings to the broader world. And if I hear that word generalise once more, I'll deck someone on it because I think it's a really dangerous way to think about this. Because what this data teaches us is how to do marketing and advertising well. Um, And yeah, okay, so in general, perhaps people don't do it well, but do we really learn from that? And in some instances, this is why it's so vital to look at these kinds of uh, exemplars of, of, of excellence, which is what we've got here, because they do teach us that often when the market is led by a mainstream movement such as performance marketing, it isn't always going in a sensible direction. So initially we got criticised, I think the digital lobby said, oh, these are old fashioned people, they're backed by TV, they're not really, um, they're not, they're not really on the ball. That has definitely changed. We've had some very high profile case studies, Airbnb being the one that perhaps was most famous. Um, But there's been loads and there are loads of them now in the IPA data bank of brands that saw the light. They'd gone heavily down the performance marketing uh, route. Growth dried up. Um, the model became unsustainable and they realized that actually there was something in in Lesson, I thinking about balance and the 60-40 rule. And they put that right and they realised then that unlocked growth and things have changed dramatically. So we're getting a lot less of that early criticism that just said this is kind of last millennium thinking. And I think people now increasingly accept that there is a need to build brands. Uh, There are still debates about how and where you should do it is are so-called legacy media still uh, worth using or should we be doing this exclusively on digital? And those are big and important debates. But at least now I think things have moved on and people are no longer saying, you know, all that brand building stuff that Les and Peter bang on about is just so out of date. I think that point has landed at least in more sophisticated end of marketing, the kinds of global marketers that mostly... Les and I will deal with, and certainly the case studies will deal with. At the, you know, at, at other ends of the market, I think there is still a job to be done, and, and certainly Les and I don't intend to shut up about the importance of brand building because the the battle isn't completely won. But certainly, um, uh, I think we are, we're making progress. So uh, we f- we feel quite good about that. I think. <laughs> you think it's five years since uh, it, the last five years that somehow it's ramped up. Well, okay, I was um, convenient um, articulation of timescales. I think you're right. And I think I could even give you data to prove that. Because if you look at the search data on things like the long and the short of it, I think you'll see a kick up five years ago, which is when I started posting about it on social media. Following your own guidelines there. Isn't it ironic that... <laughs> that <laughs> and, 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 to, and to be fair, um, uh, we've had some great advocates in the last five years. I think we should give credit where it's due. Mark Ritson has undoubtedly been 
the real stimulus, I think, as he's he's picked he's picked our work up and used it in very challenging environments in, you know, stushes that he's had with Ehrenberg Bass and so forth. So I think that has helped very definitely get us on our global. I mean, Les and I were reasonably capable at getting it well known in the UK, but on a global level, I think Mark's been fantastic at helping us do that. So, um, no, I will I will give full credit to Mark on this. Can I just say that Russell, that you 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 sort of said something like violating your own own guidelines. I don't think that that at all. Um, as I, as I've said, as I keep saying, first of all, it's the long and the short of it. And secondly, and maybe Peter, we might slightly disagree about this. I'm not sure, but I I strongly believe one can totally do brand building in digital media. It's not. It, this is not the long and the short of it is not the on and the offline of it. It's about two different ways that you can use different. And, and in fact, as I've also said elsewhere recently um, and repeatedly, this is not about different channels. All channels do both jobs to some extent. And one can use the same channel to do either job, depending on how you use the channels. So, you know, for example, a TV ad can be brand building or it can be direct response. You can do DRTV. We talk about that explicitly in one of our books. Um, a post on social media, media can be a brand building post or it can be a direct response type post. Um, you know, it's not about channels. It's about mechanisms, about the way advertising works and the way you use advertising. Um, so, so somebody said to me on social media, um, can you use social media for, for brand building? And my reply was, yes, I'm doing it now. Well, I was going to say, that was the point I was making, Les, not that you were uh, contradicting your own work, but that you've clearly used social media um, to uh, to build your own personal brand and the brand of Lana Schultz of it. I do get sort of vexed about this because um, people... I have to say, it does annoy me. People don't read our work closely or pay, pay attention to our work closely, I think. There's a lot of people who kind of just know a couple of things and spout off about it as if they've read them. And they seem to imply that we are, uh, for example, there's quite an annoying person who runs a, a, a podcast who I won't name, who constantly refers to our work as if we are only asking, arguing for traditional media and only talking about brand advertising. Um, and that is not what we're saying. Well, I think it speaks to a, and I was going to ask you about that because people have leveled that criticism uh, at you before that, you know, to a degree, not you two uh, per se, but certainly some in the industry, hark back to some kind of halcyon days of advertising and often that means traditional media. But what you were saying, Les, is really interesting. And I'd like you just to explore that a little bit further. And Peter, in fact, about, about using digital channels for brand building, because traditionally, and that's perhaps down to the limitations of imagination or the data that's readily available, uh, people haven't necessarily seen digital channels as brand building. I just wondered if if you could point to best practice, good case studies of brands that are using digital to build brands and uh, for long-term success? Well, we can definitely do it. I mean, um, 
you know, the principles of brand building are that you need to reach a lot of people. Uh, you need to reach ideally all category buyers. Now, some digital media, whether or not you can just use digital for that depends on the category uh, and what, what audiences you're talking to. Um, but um, particularly, you know, if you're talking to younger audiences, that that might be the primary driver of reach. The second principle is you need to get emotional engagement, or rather, to be more precise about it, you need to engage people at the system one level of emotions, feelings, and associations. So um, one can definitely get people very strongly emotionally involved with online content in various kinds, online video. Um, in our book, uh, Media in Focus, we talked about the fact that online or offline, video is best for brand building. Um, um, all the principles of good branding, you know, creating strong brand associations, one can do that on online simply by, you know, you know, creating distinctive brand assets in the same way as you do in any other channel. Um, um, it's about creating memorability. That's one of the third sort of pillars of, of brand building. And one can create memorable stuff online. Again, video tends to do this very well. Um, where sometimes online media have a little challenge is, is reach. Um, so sometimes one needs to use a mix of media. For, if you're talking about a mainstream brand, for example, like, you know, the stuff, for example, that we do, do or did for John Lewis, um, we used TV and online video hand in hand because that allows you to talk to older and younger audiences. Um, but online video was always a, a, an important part of the mix. Um, but why don't people do brand building online? Well, some do, but one problem is that well, I think it's to do with measurement. So a whole culture of digital marketing has grown up, which is based around the idea that your way of measuring success online is to look at direct response type metrics. And if that's the, if those are the KPIs you're following, you will do direct response type marketing. So. I believe that it's the measurement systems that lead the strategy, the tail wagging the dog. If you believe that you measure success through performance marketing style metrics, you will be forced into doing performance marketing. And this is, and if I could bring you in on this, uh, Peter, but because this is interesting, isn't it? Because um, it's easier to uh, assess and measure the impact of media particularly online as les has just talked about but it's a slightly harder it just is harder to measure the impact of brand activity over the long term which i think has led to many more brands doing that um or focusing uh, too much on um easily attributable shorter term but it's also because we've been living in a perennial state of economic uncertainty it seems since you published the book i'm not laying the blame at your door of course is this marketers not necessarily pushing the case to their finance directors or because of the macroeconomic environment finance directors forcing marketers uh, down a road perhaps too short is at uh, termism i mean what what's sitting behind those that haven't got it because the sad fact despite your book 
gaining traction in the last five years for whatever reason. Uh, there is there are still a lot of marketers out there who find it really difficult to make the case. Undoubtedly, and you know, uh, Les and I, I'm sure we both get plenty of uh, uh, paid work for helping companies to put that case to their to their C-suite. So I think that's very important. But I do think uh, you know, lots of companies have had their fingers burnt with trying to brand build online. Let's come back to this key issue, because I think Les and I both know that it's perfectly possible to build a brand online. It just turns out to be actually much more difficult than anyone imagined. And it's only recent work that I think's really taught us why. And that is the work you know, that's being done by the attention uh, measurement companies, uh, Karen Nelson Field in Australia and the UK as well. We're, we're, we're doing this all as well. And what we've learned, of course, is that most digital platforms simply don't support adequate um, scale of attention. So they may have the reach, tons of reach, but people just simply will not view on these platforms the kinds of videos that are capable of building brands. And Karen Nelson Fields' work is very interesting. She's looked at, you know, what kind of um, uh, level of attention do you need before you can start to form these kind of brand memories and you can you can you know, essentially start to brand build. And her work teaches us that on average, it's something like two and a half seconds. But her work also teaches us that only 15% of video ads, that's one five percent of video ads actually achieve that. So that's online, social and non-social. And she, we know that it varies. Some platforms, non-social platforms in particular, tend to be better at, at uh, supporting longer viewing lengths and social are generally not as good, though things are in flux, things are changing, things are improving all the time, as they need to and as they should. But I think a lot of marketers have just found that, you know, it's simply not good enough. You can't just take your TV idea, your TV video that worked so well and probably still does work quite well um, on TV and just whack it on um, a digital platform because often it simply will not get that level of attention. And there's some very interesting findings coming out of Australia at the moment, which will be published very soon. That again shows that you know the the average dwelt on the average full attention um, uh, that video ads get in the Australian marketplace is under two seconds, but that the effect the FE winners are coming in on digital buttons are over six seconds or around about six seconds. So it's teaching us that you can do this if you study excellence, if you learn from case studies of effectiveness and you are not obsessed with what is generalizable, then you can actually uh, uh, kind of nudge the rules. You, you can achieve those kinds of levels of attention that you need to build a brand. But, you know, it's not easy it really isn't easy and you've got to you've got to work at it you ask the question who does it well I, I often refer to some I think really interesting ads over the years that shows the learning in the US uh, insurance company called Geico who have deliberately lent into this problem how do you get people to watch online videos how do you how do you take account of the fact that even with a nice entertaining piece of advertising, they're still not going to watch it for more than a few seconds, four or five seconds. And I think their work is is um, a good piece of learning on that. Otherwise, you're kind of left with the model that Les and I have talked about quite a lot, which is to say that one of the great values of digital media, digital video in particular, is it's a great amplifier of what you do achieve in legacy media, particularly TV. So if you've if, if you you know been in the position where you've 
got re reasonable exposure to a good and successful TV ad, then you can certainly trigger memories of that um, with short attention levels on, you know, on digital media very well. And we know that, that that works to amplify the investment you've already made. So they've uh, you know, digital channels have always had that really useful, very powerful role as an amplifier of non-digital media. I think where the work is going on and is beginning to yield results is how they can become a primary driver of brand building on their own um, but that that's still there's still a way to go on that one I think personally I keep coming back to this thing about what you measure so one of the attractions of digital media um, compared to you know I, actually I shouldn't say digital media by the way because all the media are digital one of the attractions of online media and even that term is vexed um, but say you know, the, one of the attractions of you know a TikTok ad or a YouTube ad or Facebook ad or whatever. Um, one of the attractions is low cost per thousand. Um, um, and but I, and I, I think this is one of the most valuable things about what Karen Nelson Field and Lumen and people like that are doing is they're saying, yeah, well, in at one level, it's low cost per thousand. But when you factor in the very poor quality of attention, you know, Many of those thousand that you, many of those eyeballs you're buying, first of all, many of them are non-human. Uh, <laughs> that's a problem. Um, many of the humans who see these things uh, only see them for a fraction of a second and don't see all, all of the screen and don't, and, and you know, and so forth. Um, and that this stuff matters. So Karen has argued for a sort of cost per quality thousand. And I think when one does that, and Lumen did, did a similar thing where they said, okay, when you look at the, the cost per second of attention, actually the best value for money comes from a 30-second TV ad according to Lumen's data. So, so you see what I'm saying here? Part of the drive to these things is they appear to look cheap, but they're cheap because actually they don't deliver the quality. Yeah, they're cheap, but they're still overpriced. That's the other critical finding of all of this. The other thing is that they're overpriced if you, you price them for quality. Now, again, I'm not saying this means you shouldn't use them. It's just that it means that the mix, their part in the mix, may be distorted depending on which audience you're talking to because you're using the wrong price metric. So people are using the wrong price metric to buy the stuff. And then they're using the wrong evaluation metrics to, to, to see whether they're successful. Because if you're building a brand campaign, you should not just be measuring it in terms of direct responses. So if you measure the wrong things, you end up doing the wrong things. That's the experience I've had and, and some of the cautionary tales reported to me by marketers over the years, though, that um, it's... It's just, it's just easier, as I said a moment ago, it's just easier to make that case via a spreadsheet often, which does, does lead to bad choices. And I think they probably know that, um, but it's just an easier conversation to have with their finance director if they're making decisions based upon a spreadsheet and not, I mean, listen, nobody's sticking their finger in the air and, and just acting on instinct and intuition. There is some great work, uh, yours and others uh, mentioned, that does show the benefit of this but it does require somewhat or a little bit more of a leap of faith and think about it from the point of view of a marketer who's who's got a choice between doing something you know a big brand campaign with you know broad reach 
using a wide range of channels so that they get reach everybody with high production values and then measuring it properly with a balanced scorecard of digital metrics, controlled experiments, econometric modeling. That's a huge cost and a huge long-term commitment. And then on the other hand, they go, well, we could make a little TikTok thing. It's, you know, it's cheap to make. Uh, we can get it up there quickly. Uh, it appears to be low in terms of cost per thousand. We get immediate feedback that, you know, the the digital metrics that we use to measure it, we get like we get feedback within we get get feedback within, you know, hours for free, and we can see whether it's working. So you know, cheap to do, cheap to measure, boom, do that. Trouble is that the the measurements you're using for for cheapness are wrong. So it's cheap in some sense, but actually it's not necessarily very good value. Sometimes that's not always true, but sometimes some of the things you buy a poor value. And yeah, the metrics are quick, cheap, give you fast feedback, and they give you the wrong numbers. I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but on behalf of everybody that doesn't work for a big multinational consumer goods company, and that's quite a long tail who uh, engage with Marketing Week, those that work at smaller organisations, often in the B2B space, is there any thing that you would say in terms of all that you've learned through all of your work in the book and since to them uh, that, that they should do differently or think differently is your advice any different to a smaller brand than it is a large organization yes to some extent yes um so um, um well if you look at our book effectiveness in context so we've done two follow-up books uh, well, three if you include the, the short report we wrote for B2B. But we wrote two books in 2017, 18 or 18, 19. I'm, I'm, 17 and 18, I think it was. Media in Focus and Effectiveness in Context, which look at sort of broadly speaking how things work now and in the digital age. And in Effectiveness in Context, we talked about startups and smaller brands. Um, and there are some differences. Um, uh, so, in fact, I'm going to be talking about this topic specifically next week at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. So <laughs> do come along and see me next Sunday. Um, anyway, um, but um, uh, startups are one of the sort of, you know, one of the areas when uh, you, you probably do need to go a bit acti activation heavy at first. Um, I also suspect, but we don't have good data on this, that it might be one of those areas where if you're on a very small budget, maybe you should be doing brand and activation at the same time, because you can. It's not, not, not the most efficient thing to do, but if you've got a tiny budget, you might have no option. But the point is, as you grow, you very quickly need to move away from that. Uh, as you grow and get bigger, you need to, to, you need to grow up. You, know, you need to uh, sort of um, start doing more brand building and and i think probably increasing i mean the other big challenge i think we often get is about reach you know and we they they hear it from les and i they hear it from from Ehrenberg bass that you know you've got a max reach you've got to try and reach everyone in the category and small brands i've worked with they said it's just simply not realistic i simply do not have the dollars to do it um and so you need to give them a kind of way of thinking and a way of working and you know so i tend with companies like that i tend rather than talking about 
uh, going for reach by talking about building outreach, that yes, you do need to do some sensible thoughts about targeting. And I'm absolutely with Ritson on this. You know, you've got to you've got to look at where your early growth is going to come from, but obviously realize that in the long term you've got to keep building that out because ultimately your maximum growth is going to come from targeting everyone. But you know, it's just about being realistic for young and small brands in the market and giving them, you know, a route. Uh, to growth that isn't unrealistic from day one, which is you know, which is kind of what a lot of the big brand thinking is for them. If I'm pitching on on reach, um, I think it's really important. Again, we get so many misconceptions about what we're saying when we talk about reach. We're not saying that you need to talk to the entire universe or the entire population of your country or whatever. Um, your ultimate goal should be to reach all users of your category. Um, that you can serve. Um, so, um, so for example, if you're, you know, if you're a local taxi company, you're not talking to all taxi drive ta- taxi passengers. You're talking about all potential taxi passengers in your local market that you can serve. Um, if you're, you know, selling, um, um, I don't know, garden pesticides, you're not talking to all. All, all adults, you're talking to all people who do gardening, you know, it's so you want to reach all potential category users that you can serve and no more. And that's the ultimate aim. And as Peter says, if you have a limited budget, you're going to have you may not be able to reach all those people straight away. So what you need to do is prioritize which segments you can reach, which people you can reach within that and build out. But there is a really important media principle here is it's reach rather than frequency and and this i think people get wrong it's an old media principle it's been demonstrated many many years ago the most efficient number of exposures is one um uh, and and so your aim should be to talk to everyone you can you can reach once and then if you've got more budget go go twice um and there are lots of people who just don't simply don't believe that. I've seen a post on social media recently where somebody was talking about how, how important it was to, to, to build up frequency. It's just not true. And in the old days, with, with just things like TV, reach and frequency tended to go together because you couldn't do them separately. But with digital media, you can, with frequency. If I could just um, uh, dwell on B2B, and I'm going to bring in a guest question. Uh, which I haven't warned you about, but I asked um, somebody that you will both know, John Lombardo from the B2B Institute for a question specifically around B2B. Forgive me, I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm going to read it word for word. uh, And Peter, I'll address this one to you. Um, The data from uh, you guys on B2B recommends a 46-54 split in activation brand. Hopefully he's got that bit right. However, the data is based on what B2B companies did in the past, not what they ought to do in the future. Reasoning from their latest data and copious wisdom, his words, uh, what do they recommend B2B companies spend in the future? Um, Any different from what you've talked about in the past? It's, of course, a very good question and um, a difficult one to answer. I mean, generally speaking, in the B2C data, we have been seeing 
a progression, uh, gradual progression towards the importance of brand that has perhaps stopped. It's got to a kind of sensible point now. Um, I think we might see a little bit of that in the world of B2B. Um, I certainly see a lot of companies leaning into brand building in B2B that wouldn't have before. Um, and what we will learn from them uh, is, is that perhaps we, you know, we may be able to refine our sweet spot of, for, you know, uh, of, of roughly 45, 55, as we said. It's very difficult to put a time trend on it. I suspect it's not going to change dramatically over time. It might move a bit more towards 50-50. But it's always seemed to Les and I that there are good sound reasons why the sweet spot in B2B might be different from B2C. And we know we know it varies within B2C widely, depending on whether you're the service end of things or the um, uh, you know, packaged goods end of things. And that will, of course, also be true in B2B. But also they just have quite long sales uh, funnels um, and therefore is there is a greater role for the activation kind of stuff in all of that. Um, and there's arguably a role for a more hybrid kind of approach where ads are doing a bit of both somewhere in the middle of all of that. But um, I've, I don't know. It's very difficult to answer. It's a, it's a, it's a tricky question, but um, I don't expect it. Let me be absolutely categoric. I don't expect the importance of brand to weaken over time in the world of B2B at all. The sample sizes of B2B are quite small. So... Um, uh, I I think it's really important not to get too hung up on on the precise ratio. Again, a thing that annoys me is that people seem to think somehow the sixty forty ratio is the sum total of everything we've said. You know, um, it's not a very precise ratio. Um, one of the things that you, you see when you look at the shape of the curve is it's quite flat at the top, which means that actually. Going from fifty foot, um, going from sort of sixty five thirty five to fifty five forty five, probably not a lot of difference. Um, the difference we saw between B two B and B two C is a lot less than the variation you see within B two C. So my take on it is my overall take from all of our B two B findings was where we've measured stuff for B two B, it's broadly similar to. To B to C, with perhaps a slight raised uh, importance for activation, but I think actually the really the big finding is that, is that lots of people in B two B don't think brand building matters at all or has any role, and that's the big finding is that basically business people are people, and that their response to advertising is broadly similar to other kinds of people, and therefore if you want to talk to business people. You need to talk to them on a human level, not just a functional transactional level. So there is a role for, for, for creativity and emotion and brand building in B2B. The interesting thing is that in the latest round of the IP effectiveness awards, and to a lesser extent in the previous one, there has now there is a renewed wave of B2B cases coming in. And the astonishing, and I have to say I'm delighted to, to realise this, is that a consistent theme in them is that they have adopted the kind of principles that Les and I have been talking about. The human tone, you know, we often we refer to it as emotion, but of course emotions in B2B tend to be rather different from in B2C, but they are nevertheless trying to build an emotional um, uh, kind of response in audiences. All of these things are very much core themes in the new wave of B2B. So I'm hoping that this is the start of a much bigger and broader trend and that the B2B world will 
will will wake up to the missed opportunity that um, that's been there all along. If I could ask the questions for you, Russell, um, a theme I that that I'd like to introduce is this emotional versus rational um, theme in the book, um, because I can't remember exactly how we wrote it in um, the long and the short of it, but but went th- went through a definite phase of trying to stop using emotional versus rational, um, because that's not really the actual dimension. It's system one versus system two. Um, it's, you know, Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, described two ways of, that human beings think and process data, system one, one thinking, system two thinking. Um, and I think we did talk about that in the long and the short of it. We did. The book was relatively new out at the time, I think. And... Um, it went through a real phase of trying to get people to move away from emotional versus rational because it's not a, it's not about it's not just about emotions it's about as i try to say emotions feelings and associations psychologists make a distinction between emotions and feelings and associations are another dimension to this um so that brand building works by first of all creating mental links associations between the brand distinctive brand assets, advertising, category entry points. These mental links that basically mean that when when you think about, you know, when you're in a relevant buying situation, you think, think about the brand. So that's associative thinking. Feelings, which are a much weaker thing than emotions. It's more about just kind of like, broadly speaking, you know, I, li- I like this brand. And then emotions, you know, where, 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 which is at the sort of top end. But when we when we talk about emotions, I think we do ourselves a slight disservice because it makes it sound like, you know, say emotions in B2B, oh, well, yeah, we should be making people cry or we should be making people frightened or whatever. But in fact, actually, a lot of the time it's just about charm. And But um, the problem we have, or I've had anyway, I don't know about you, Peter, is that when I, when I talk about system one versus system two approaches to advertising, you then have to get into a whole psychological conversation about what those terms mean. So I've tended to lazily default back to talking about emotions versus rational, which is not quite where it's at. No, I agree. It's, it is quite complex. And not many people have actually read Kahneman's book. They're kind of loosely aware of System 1, System 2, because lots of companies have helped explain that, not least of which is the System 1 agency. Strictly speaking, he's, he's sold more books than we have. <laughs> I shed load more books than we have, and, and quite rightly so too. Um, but um, yeah, so we have to slightly ride on his coattails. And of course, it's not a marketing text. It's, it's, it doesn't talk about marketing advertising at all uh, uh, in Kahneman's book. So we, we're, we're, you know, we've been adapting that his, his model and his way of thinking because it does very, very neatly explain an awful lot of the patterns that we find in the data in the way different kind of campaigns work. So it's been, it's been brilliantly helpful from our point of view. Going back to Russell's sort of earlier question about why is the book been so slow burn. I think, I mean, personally, I think I always intended that even when we went back to our first book two thousand in 2007, I always intended it that it would be slow burn. That was why we why we very, very definitely wanted to write a book or books rather than, you know, some, th- you know, throwaway report. Um, but one of the reasons that it's all taken so long is it in, involves a whole 
change in the language that you use to talk about marketing and the conceptual framework you have for thinking about marketing. That that requires, to some extent, a sort of, it's a change of paradigm. It involves a shift in the way people talk and the way people think, which is a social thing and needs to gain momentum. And I feel, I feel we're only just getting started. No, I know I'd agree with you, certainly uh, thinking about it through the prism of B2B, um, conversations around the role of emotion um, and also the very rational nature of B2B does mean that many B2B marketers, and I appreciate I'm generalising massively here, um, do focus only on uh, CTA, rational uh a rationally driven advertising and are often uh, the executors of, of 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 others strategy um and that's 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 a challenge but it is changing yep and again it's metrics you know they're, they're being they're being evaluated on you know number of leads and number of meetings and number of you know all that sort of stuff. yeah and it is interesting when you read the criticisms in the B2B world of the um, LinkedIn publication that, that Les and I produced um, three years ago, I think it was, where we looked at B2B effectiveness specifically. Those kind of criticisms are, are remarkably aligned to the kind of criticisms we saw 10 years ago uh, when The Long and the Short of It was published. You know, um, uh, it's, you know, very much this is all just kind of wild, newfound thing. You just ignore it. You know, it'll go away and actually stick to what you know, guys. It's about, you know, rational selling messages and supporting the sales guys and all of that. Um, you know, and I, I think that... Is already begun to change. I think, you know, in 10 years time, maybe that people will be waving our B2B book around as much as they're beginning to wave the long and the short of it around. It would be nice to say, but it is slow burn stuff. It takes a long, long time for these messages to learn, to land and to get spread through the marketing ecosystem and for people who, you know, who adopted it to build success on it and to talk about that success and to carry it through their careers and to train their juniors. So it's, it's long, slow burn stuff. Um, and to imagine that um, it would ever have flown, I think, in the short term would have been naive. I mean, the, the report very nearly did get buried, I would say, by the IP after a year or two when it was deemed to be an old report and no longer worthy of support. Um, but I mean, Les, Les and I have managed to kind of keep it alive to the point where now hopefully it's more self-sustaining. It's That's a very, very marketing role. On the question of... Uh, legacy and i have another guest uh, question um and i'm going to read it in typically colorful fashion although i'm not going to attempt to do an impression mark ritson's had a couple of mentions today um and he's obviously being a big supporter of uh, of your work over the years um here's his question for you both and it's a nice way to sum up things i think um you'll always be known for uh, long and short, but is that not a frustration as well as an achievement? And um, you could easily have become f famous for ESOV uh, or Les and his work on share of search or Pete's broader work on effectiveness. Are you happy with the long and short bit on your professional tombstone? As I say, word for word, his question. So don't blame me. But it's a nice one. Yeah, I think I'm reasonably happy. I mean, it, it's. Um... Well, first of all, you know, ESOV was not something we invented, so um, uh, we, we helped to pop. I take issue with Mark on that one. 
I suppose it it's the core of the of the thinking that that I think we're probably most both most proud of. I mean, would you say that, Peter? Yeah, no, definitely. And I'd be very I'd be very proud if it was on my tombstone um, because. You know, a, a because it touches on so many issues. The point we make in the the intro to the long and the short is that it's it's not just about the sixty forty rule or whatever. It it touches just about everything in the world of marketing communications. The need to understand that there are these two lenses that you can view effectiveness through, and that each of them takes you in radically different directions, um, and you can apply it to lots and lots of areas of of thinking and execution. So I'm you know I'm very proud about that. Because I think it is a it's a very big broad idea. The name of the book was not ours. It was it was you know, a very came from uh, Thinkbox. I think so. One of their team came up with the name. It was Janet Hull at the IPA. Uh, yeah, a smart and um, uh, resonant because it it does say everything. I think in many ways. And and and, and thank you for that. I mean, uh, one thing that struck me um, looking over the book in the last week or so was. Many of the issues are as relevant today, perhaps even more so today in marketing than they were 10 years ago, certainly in wake of inflation. So the importance of price and optimization of price and obviously profitability as the primary demonstration of success seems to me to be a message that still needs to get through, but is getting through. And I think that's the thing that um, we've uh, discussed in detail today. Thank you very much, uh, Les Peter, for sharing the story of how it all came together, um, some of what you've uh, observed and learned uh, since, and uh, a more general exploration of the world of effectiveness within marketing. Uh, thank you very much uh, to both of you. Thank you, and I'm hoping that the tombstones don't arrive too soon. My pleasure, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys. Um, until next time on This Much I Learned, goodbye.